This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, the New York Times' Emily Flitter discusses her book, The White Wall. She reports on the barriers that people of color face when interacting with the U.S. financial services industry. There's different treatment where when you are you are black and you're living in a black neighborhood and you have a an insurance policy and something goes wrong, you file a claim, an adjuster says, are you committing fraud? Because there's a lot of fraud in your area. She's interviewed by author and Brookings Institution senior fellow, Andre Perry. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Emily Flitter, how are you? I'm great. (laughs) I'm really happy to be here. Well, it's... Uh, with a pleasure reading The White Wall, How Big Finance Bankrupts Black America. And I will tell you, I will never walk in a bank the same way again. <laughs> I don't think anyone should. Uh, and I actually, I really want to uh, um, um, first start off with a question that people usually end with. But who is this book for? Um, because I got mixed signals on that. Some of it was seemed to me for bank professionals. Some of it were for black consumers. In general, who, who's this book for? Well, I certainly didn't want it to be a warning for black consumers because I don't think I'm surprising anyone who's black in this country. I think that, um, and I've been hearing since the book came out, that the book is describing experiences that are very common. And that's why I wrote it. Um, So for people who have gone through this, I hope it's validating. For people who haven't gone through this and who either work in the banking industry or in the financial industry or just are American and want to make this country a better place, this book is a wake-up call. Now, you challenge me in a lot of ways, Uh, one of which is something I always say, attack ideas, not people. You know, it's, it's better to go after policy. And that's why researchers like me tend to use data. We look for statistical significance. We look for trend lines. We, we talk about interest rates and, and plot them in certain ways. But this is a, a, a pretty journalistic uh, pointing fingers at specific people. You name names, you name banks. Um, tell us why looking at individual behavior is important in dismantling um, structural inequality? Well, there we can talk all day about numbers and numbers don't lie. But one thing that I found as I started to look into this subject was there was this sort of dehumanization um, that goes on all the time in the banking industry where you can talk about broad categories and you can talk about people that don't fit molds of, you know, the good um, credit customer and whatnot. And if you just do that, you're losing the human experience. So I tried to put a lot of personal stories of people who went through really bad experiences in the financial uh, industry um, in order to 
get readers to live inside the bodies and the minds of people who deal with this. So I, I um, also, I'm a journalist and not a social scientist, right. and so I didn't really have the skills to do my own studies. But there are so many studies out there, I didn't need to. Yeah, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm saying that many researchers should uh, take a cue from journalists because oftentimes sort of a, a, a quantitative approach dismisses um, some of the behaviors um, that we saw in your book. And now a lot of us have heard of driving while black, shopping while black, but there's banking while black. And there's a chapter in your book and, and you and use the phrase, please use caution um, to sort to explain how people are stereotyped and profiled in banks. Can you talk a little bit about please use caution? Please use caution is the the subject line of a continuous email that goes around or did very recently go around a particular region of J.P. Morgan Chase branches in the U.S. Northeast. It's like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. And it's this sort of constant email thread where tellers from different branches describe people who came in and did weird stuff that wasn't okay and the purpose of this chain is to warn tellers at other branches, if this person walks in, you should know that they already tried this thing here and, you know, this is what happened. So as a concept, it's, it makes total sense. I mean, banks are places with a lot of money. People want to figure out how to get the money. They'll, you know, steal somebody's bank card and try to impersonate them or whatever. That's not weird. What's weird is I received a cache of emails you know, obviously this please use caution thing, it's not public. It's only for internal J.P. Morgan employees. But somebody who was reading this, these emails felt super uncomfortable with some of the emails. And those were the ones that described black customers walking into a Chase branch. And after they described what the, the person looked like, the emails didn't really explain what they did wrong. And it was in sharp contrast with, you know, this person came in and presented a, an, an ID and a card that had already been reported stolen. And, you know, we already talked to the real customer on the phone. No, it was like black uh, African-American man tried to cash a check from a business from Texas. <laughs> I don't know what is wrong with that. Um, and it's not explained in the email. Um, there's another email that describes a very young African-American male with blonde dreads who comes in with a check he wants to cash the check. The teller doesn't believe that it was issued to him. He gets upset and he leaves and the teller calls the person who wrote the check and the person says, yes, I wrote this check to this guy. So it's okay. Also, why is that please use caution except maybe please don't treat that guy like that. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, so I was reading these emails and I, I, I realized that they explained what I had already learned was happening at another bank, Wells Fargo. And I, I want to make this point here because I'm not, in my book, I point fingers, I name names, but I'm not saying any one bank is worse than other banks. Everybody has this problem and they all need to fix it. And it's not about, you know, a specific evil person or someone who's trying to throw a wrench in a system that works. It's, it's, it's everybody who's participating in a system that's not working. So when there I, is, I mean, there is a culture of 
in banking in general that you see pretty often and yes. consistently. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I had already heard stories of Wells Fargo customers or potential customers who came into Wells Fargo branches and wanted to withdraw money or cash checks and couldn't um, because the tellers didn't believe them or you know thought they were thought they were up to no good. And I had he- I had heard those stories first, and then when I saw these emails, I was like, oh. It's literally like being inside the heads of the people who made the decision to call the cops, you know, who made the decision to wonder why somebody had $70,000 in his bank account and say, you can't take that out, even though it's your bank account. But this was actually, this is actually somewhat okay in banking. There's a weird loophole in um, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, um, um, which was very, pretty specific about naming the institution that shall not discriminate. But banks aren't included in that list. Can you talk about um, that loophole and, and, and how the banking industry essentially fought for the right to discriminate? Yes. I, um, I don't know the specific history of who lobbied for industries mm-hmm. um, well enough to describe it in detail, but what I do know is that in when the, the Civil Rights Act was being uh, hammered out, the um, to get enough members of Congress to sign on to it, the its its creators realized that there were there were going to have to be a lot of narrowing factors in it. Mm-hmm. And so they listed specific businesses that you couldn't discriminate that couldn't discriminate against anybody, and they were movie theaters and restaurants and hotels. Um, the the industry or the the industries and the businesses that aren't listed there have arguably been excluded and are okay discriminating. And so that's it's not totally settled. Um, there was a really important case within the last ten years where a uh, Latino man in um, Florida went into a Target, a white woman cashier didn't want to deal with him and sent him to the next cashier. And so he sued for discrimination, and the um, a lower court and an appeals court said, it's not discrimination because the next cashier who you then were sent to, you know, allowed you to complete the transaction. So that's the weird loophole. It's like some of these businesses can... They don't have to apparently treat you the same as long as you get the business done. And banks are, you know, in that category. And um, what it means is they look at somebody and say, I'm, I'm just not sure I want to do business with you and I'm going to, like, test you extra hard. And, and uh, the, thing that, the thing that happens, though, is if a customer gets mistreated like this, and they find a lawyer, the banks are, you know, very embarrassed, and then they end up settling these cases. So a lot of times it doesn't work out for the banks, and it's not like they should be doing this. It's not, yeah, it's really not okay. Well, let's talk about one case. Jabari has an interesting story. Share the story of Jabari. So Jabari was living in Atlanta, and he had a house, and he sold the house and got the cash from selling it and put it into a bank account. It was $71,000, I think. And then he moved up to Delaware to be with his mom. 
and he wanted to buy a car and he went into a Wells Fargo branch to get cash to pay for a car that he had found at a dealership just down the road and the Wells Fargo tellers were like not buying it that it was his bank account that he was who he said he was and he was so shocked he actually left the they they said forget it we're not doing a transaction he left the branch and came back in and he was like I'm sorry I just I want my money and that's when they you know picked up the phone and started dialing 911 and I'll never forget when I was talking to him about it on the phone and I said like you know you've just told me what happened and what you did and what they said how did you feel and he was like they made me feel like I was nothing and it was really heartbreaking and it turned out it was I mean it was absolutely his money he got a lawyer they settled confidentially um but it's just all too common that that happens i'm going to read a quote um that sort of typifies what you just said bankers make all kinds of private race-based judgments of bank customers and they extend far beyond a tendency to believe customers claims about their identities and the sources of their wealth you know when i read your book it it, you know, I, we tend to think of banks as cold transactional institutions with rigid rules. And if you follow the rules, um, you'll be treated fairly. But they're very much cultural institutions. And you, sometimes it felt that you didn't necessarily name that culture that it's protecting. Um, can you name a, a culture that banks are protecting? Is it is it white supremacy? Hey, I, I I would I would say some things, but hey, what do you think? I mean, I like I haven't thought about a name like that, but I do totally agree with you that it's absolutely a culture, and I can describe the culture. The culture is um, a one in which bankers feel like they can decide who should have money, who it, it is logical has money. Um, and that is the kind of decision that led to Jabari not being able to withdraw his own money to buy a car because somebody looked at him and said, it doesn't make sense for this guy to have money. Um, and I think that there are examples of that all the way up the ranks in the financial industry. Those kinds of judgments, like, should you be here? It's not just bank teller making this kind of judgment. I listened to Thesunda Duckett talk about her time um, in the financial industry. She's now the CEO of TIAA Craft. She's incredibly powerful, incredibly accomplished. But she talked about, and I put this in the book, um, the encountering people in her career who clearly felt like she didn't belong there. Mm -hmm. And that is the that is the culture that needs to change. Yeah, I want to um, um, keep the focus a little bit more on the customers themselves and, and ways to fight that. And one is mystery shopping. Um, you, you cite uh, the, um, the nonprofit National Community Re- Reinvestment Coalition (NCRC), um, who does a lot of work of, of compelling banks to invest in Black and Brown communities. Can you just talk about the importance of uh, secret shopping 
in, in holding banks accountable? Mystery shoppers are a great concept. Um, and I wish I could remember where I saw this, but I actually saw like a trade, a little trade publication uh, in the industry um, that had a little article saying, watch out because the DOJ is doing this more. Um, but they're great. So you basically equip two sets of uh, pretend customers with profiles, credit scores and jobs and um and you send them into the same bank and see how they're treated. If one is white and one is black, you can observe how that treatment is affected by their race if you solve for everything else. And the designers of these studies cleverly actually give the black customer better financial profiles, um, better credit score, you know, better job. And then they watch what happens. And the results of the studies have uh, are varied enough that I don't want to sum them up in one single statement. But in general, the black customers haven't been treated as well as the white customers. Yeah, and we're seeing this all over the country now regarding appraisal, something you know I write about quite a bit in that uh, people are doing their own experiments. They're whitewashing their homes, meaning they're pulling the books that uh, written by black authors and uh, removing the the clothes and the artwork and and hair products, uh, things like cocoa butter even. And then um, when an appraiser comes, they'll get a white stand-in. Um, and then the appraisal will come in. The, appra- the second appra- appraisal often comes in hundreds of thousands of dollars um, higher. So this, you know, this type of, of gambit, if you will, that, that folks are doing are, is a really fundamental uh, tool in getting justice um, for consumers. Now, I want to pivot a little bit to inside the bank. Now, you, you, you spend a, a great bit of time talking about consumers, but there's a, you know, just a great um, set of stories around individual bankers and, and people working on the inside. And, and one of the bridges um, between the consumer and um, the professionals is the story of, um, between Ricardo and, and Jimmy. Can you just lay out some the, the basics of the story and, and, and let me ask some questions regarding it? Sure, absolutely. Um, it's an amazing story, and I, I'd like to start out by saying that what made it so complete was Ricardo's and Jimmy's foresight to record everything. Mm-hmm. So you're starting out with just an amazing record of things that usually aren't ever recorded and can't be proven. And Ricardo made sure that he could prove what he was claiming. Um, and what he was claiming was that he, as a black wealth manager in J.P. Morgan Chase in Arizona, um, wasn't being treated right in his own job. He wanted to become a, a wealth manager for richer clients. The, um, the bank has kind of two tiers, and so if you're in the lower tier of wealth management, you can only deal with customers below whose, whose like net worth is below a certain point. And then if they get higher, then a different person takes over and they get you know a special status, the customer and the, the wealth manager. Something I never, I did not know about Maybe because I was of certain income, but uh, go ahead. Right. So, um, so Ricardo, like, 
he was just kind of a superstar and rocketed up through all of these different positions until he got to that one. Um, and because he didn't feel like it was right that he couldn't get past this this last barrier, he started recording his boss. And he ended up having his recording going while his boss was talking to him about a client that he had just gotten you know, signed up at the bank who actually was in this higher category. She was a black woman. And the reason that she had the money to be in this this um, higher status was, was very sad. And by the way, I should say the higher status is called Chase Private Client. Um, she had enough money to qualify as a Chase Private Client because her son had died and the circumstances of his death, whatever they were, were such that the municipality where he died had given her a settlement that was worth almost $400,000. So she had $400,000 in the bank. And he, he was saying, look, this woman qualifies to be a private client. Let me manage her money and I'll be a private client advisor. And his boss said, you're not investing a dime for this lady. This isn't money she earned. She doesn't respect this money. And heart, the, this is like a really heartbreaking moment. Ricardo's like, well, don't we, isn't our job to show her how to manage her money? I mean, isn't that how we help people? And it's in their interest. There's a business interest for them. Exactly. Well. I mean, exactly. And the boss said no. And then he said she's from Section 8. And that is that was the stand-in for the boss saying she's black, she's, she's worthless. Um, and, so that, and that was like one moment, a defining moment, but just one moment in Ricardo's entire experience. Um, and he knew, like he kind of was living how bad it was. And, and as the days went on and he, com- he filed a discrimination complaint and the bank pretended like he hadn't filed it until later and then accused him of doing something wrong in the meantime. He had also met a black man who had a lot of money because he was a retired NFL player, Jimmy Kennedy. And Jimmy loved Ricardo and was so happy to finally have a wealth manager who he felt like he could work with. And then Ricardo got fired. So Jimmy continued to use Chase for his wealth management services, even though he was massively unsatisfied. And he started recording his new financial advisor. And that's when the second explosive moment happens where Jimmy's like, why can't I get the services that I've been promised, that Ricardo promised me? And his new wealth manager said, because you're a big black man and they're afraid of what you would do if they explained, you know, the the sort of hiccups that have gone on. And this and this is stunning. I mean, you you've reported on this, but it is something to hear. I mean, you can hear the conversation in your head when you're you're reading this. I mean, it's such an explosive um, claim um, for a banker to make, and again, it's in their interest to make money from the products that they provide their clients. I know, I guess, a pun intended. To, to a certain extent, but I mean, it had to have made them feel just demoralized. Uh, how how were they talking about the experience in terms of their feelings? 
Jimmy felt terrible, and and he was frustrated. Um, and Ricardo, Ricardo is a really incredible person. When I think of what would happen to me if I went through what Ricardo went through, I think I would just, I would have just crumpled. Um, Ricardo was like, no, I'm right. Like, I, this is happening to me, and it's not right, and I know that. And Ricardo was just so focused on getting his story out. Um, and that's, you know, why he came to me and I was able to do this story. But the, um, the story that I did in the New York Times, which actually you can still read, you can go back to the New York Times and click and actually hear these recordings. Um, but um, it was the, the really important thing that I didn't sort of have space for in the Times was just how the bank gaslit Ricardo as he was trying to get justice for these initial incidents. And um, the bank basically fired him on this really weird pretense, which they later, you know, there's sort of a confidential settlement, and I don't know the details, but what I do know is the bank had to report to a regulatory body that they had fired Ricardo for some kind of wrongdoing. But if you look at the public disclosure now for Ricardo in this this regulatory um, report, which should which is public for everybody, there's none of that there. Mm. It got withdrawn, and that speaks volumes. Now, this was going on while a larger lawsuit was happening within the same bank, right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, that lawsuit and and in general how litigious? This um, um, these issues have become? Yes. Um, so, and the amazing part of this is that Ricardo was like very, very barely aware of the lawsuit right at the end when, when a settlement was reached, but he wasn't like part of, he wasn't like part of a movement of agitators. He wasn't organized with other people. He was going through all of this stuff alone. Um, but the lawsuit was describing the same kinds of experiences that Ricardo was having. It was a class action case that um, was the, the, the core of which was the same description that I, I gave earlier about getting to that barrier where you, you're a wealth manager and you want to manage money for richer clients and the bank says, we just don't think it's going to work out for you. And it was, you know, hundreds of black financial advisors, all experiencing the same thing across the country. They were being kept in branches where there wasn't a lot of wealth, and they were being told that this was the best they were going to do. Now, um, in a lot of the stories, you uh, show that many of the individuals went to HR, and there's a chapter in there about uh, uh, titled, uh, uh, named The Truth About HR, um, tell us about the role of HR. What is the role of HR in a bank? So let me start out by saying I don't think that banks have HR systems that are different from other companies. I think this is a, a, a feature of, of corporate America. Um, you have a department of people who are trying to manage working life at these giant companies. And um, the other thing that they're trying to manage is the legal liability of the company. And um, when you put those two missions together, you get a big 
conflict because all kinds of things can happen inside these big companies. And when an employee really needs help sorting it out, they're going to the same department for the same department that that is hell-bent on making sure that the company doesn't have to pay a lot in legal settlements, doesn't have bad publicity. It's all coming from the same people. The one thing that I found was that the companies all think it's really important to have policies and procedures in place to prevent discrimination and to address it when it comes up. But having those policies seems like it's the most important thing. You have a machine. The machine gets put in motion, and then it just grinds up the people who are in it. Um, again, I there's probably somebody who works in HR watching this saying, like, oh, my God, I, you know, I'm not, like, evil. How could you say this about me? I just... That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say everybody who works as an HR person is evil. But time after time, the employees who go to HR for help find that they're getting categorized as the problem. And um, the outcome is how can we have the calmest and most quiet and most uneventful outcome for the institution, not for the person? Um, That's what the people I spoke to across these um, institutions told me, whether it was a wealth manager, whether it was um, an employee on Wall Street, it was all the same, um, especially because there, and this and courts sort of have this problem too, when a discrimination complaint is made, it's often not a cartoonish set of circumstances there's you know if if you're in um i was actually talking to kimberly jones about this and she made this point last night at politics and oh i'm sorry i she made this point the other day at politics and pros when we were there um she she said look if you go into an office and call somebody the n-word you're out like that's easy you don't need a, a whole hr department full of lawyers to deal with that like duh but that's not how discrimination works and for the more subtle forms of discrimination, these big machines get set in motion, and it often doesn't really work out for the employee. Wow. And I'm going to ask you to talk about this next story um, because there is this an, um, a structural conflict between uh, that I see that the banking system is somewhat built upon squelching these kinds of of, of conflicts um, at the expense of of, of black employees, um, and and because black employees are not as valued in in the grand scheme of things, I want you to talk about Edward Jones. That, and you have a, a, a chapter called "The Friendly Guy Next Door," and I really was not familiar with the the structure of the company of mainly comprised of financial advisors. Every once in a while, someone will uh, ask me, do I need financial services? And I generally say no. Um, um, But I had no idea um, that their employees were going door, knocking on door to door, asking um, people for services. Can you explain the structure of Edward Jones before we get into one of the stories? So Edward Jones is a 
sort of like direct to consumer kind of wealth manager. You're not um, relying on a bunch of bank depositors who then need other services to get new wealth management customers if you're at Edward Jones. You're trying to, to find among the general population people who have some savings and need help managing their savings. And Edward Jones says that its secret sauce is actually having people go out into communities and neighborhoods and knock on doors like a traveling salesman of old times and, um, and meeting people that way. And when you do door knocking, you, you know, hopefully you get the name and the contact information of the person you have met at the front door, and that goes into a central database. So Edward Jones says in their regular financial reports that they rely on recruiting new people to do this job all the time. And if they don't recruit enough new people every year, they are at risk of, uh, you know, financial misfortune. And so you kind of get the sense that you're not, you know, once you get hired by Edward Jones, like, destined for a, an illustrious 30-year career because otherwise how could they possibly right. like the the whole size of the institution isn't exponentially expanding every year right where are all these new recruits going mm-hmm. so wayne bland is someone that entered um the ranks of edward jones can you talk a little bit about how we got there because he's working in the sector but decided to work for edward jones and tell his story so wayne wayne is amazing. He's, you know, he was, he was working in uh, a related part of the financial industry. He had some of the licenses that were required um, of a financial advisor, and he was doing fine on his own. Um, but Edward Jones reached out to him, a representative, and said, "Look, you'd be, it'd be easier here. We'd, ha- we have people to handle like your administrative stuff." And um, he said, "Okay, that sounds great." And he's, he's. He's the kind of guy, I mean, I've, I've never met him in person because of the pandemic, but he, when you talk to him on the phone, you realize, like, he's just great with people, like, so outgoing, so warm. Um, so he starts at Edward Jones, and he starts going to these training sessions for recruits, and he's realizing that his knowledge and experience is already greater than what, in his opinion, it was greater than what he was being taught at these training sessions. They were really basic, like, sales training sessions, including scripts, one of which I saw, which was like, have you heard of a stock called Procter & Gamble? Um, That's the kind of thing that you should say to somebody if you're knocking on their door and you want to, like, get them into a conversation about money management. Um, So Wayne went through these sessions. He um, had an idea of where he wanted to work in a neighborhood in Charlotte, North Carolina. He knew Charlotte well enough to know that he thought that going to this neighborhood would be a you know, good yield of clients. And um, the Edward Jones regional leader said, you know what, we already have someone working that neighborhood. Could you try this other neighborhood? So, so okay, right off the bat, the other neighborhood's not as great. So he's like knocking on doors and he's not getting anywhere and he's starting to figure out that it's not even safe to be going around knocking on doors in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's a black man. Like, the cops start driving by. Mm -hmm. 
And he's telling his superiors, like, look, I, I can do this another way. And he's getting no traction with that. And he's also starting to experience some really bad treatment inside Edward Jones, discriminatory statements, really hostile um, treatment by the um, executives and leaders in the region at a, a regional retreat. And um, he uh, just, his experience got worse and worse. Um, he did raise these complaints, not only to his direct managers, but also he filed an EEOC complaint. That's when you complain to the federal government about discrimination and try to get justice there. So the Edward Jones can't say they didn't know things were going wrong with him. Eventually, he had such a hard time getting clients as he was watching white financial advisors around him at Edward Jones being handed clients, um, that he ran out of money. Yeah, um, yeah t- talk about that. So you, um, these advisors are using their own money to, yes. um, to subsidize their jobs, so to speak. Uh, can you talk about that? Yes. At, at the way that it worked when Wayne was there was that you got recruited and you got a yearly salary that actually tapered off, and it was supposed to be replaced by the money that you made with your wealth management clients that you recruited. But it's so hard to recruit clients door knocking that the only people who actually succeed in this model are people who are given clients by retiring other advisors. And if you aren't given clients, then what happens to you is that you first stop earning money and then you're paying into communal expenses like office overhead. And so you just start to have your own bank account drained and you're supporting other advisors who are also in the office who are, you know, using the clients that they've been given to make their own money. And then and, and talk a little bit about this social structure. So you have to generally make money, you have to be given clients. And that's where you definitely see race relations being played out, well, right? Definitely. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, for Wayne, and like, I know that there are people are going to watch this and say, this happened to me. Wayne um, got finally put in an office, and there was a senior advisor there who um, not only like was not very nice to Wayne on a daily basis, but also had this side business where he was an antique dealer, and he was using Wayne's office to store his giant antiques that he was trying to sell. Like Wayne would have to meet clients with like this big tea cart that was like an imitation popcorn machine. Like they'd be like crammed in there and they'd be at this giant table that was also part of these the antique store um, inventory. And um, the, the senior advisor was on his way out. He was moving to another company and he was going to have to leave his clients behind. So Wayne was like, all right, I'm enduring this ridiculous setup but at least when this guy leaves, I'll get his book of business and I can take over and then I'll be great. So instead of that happening, uh, a new white advisor came in and the departing advisor and the managers said to Wayne, we hope you'll show this guy the ropes and train him and show him around and make him comfortable. And then that guy got the clients. Wow. Now, uh, one of the chapters I really loved, and this goes to my 
quantitative leanings was on um, how insurance works if you're black. It doesn't. Um, and, and what was important to me about that chapter is the significance of data accessibility. Um, one, can you talk about um, the, the structure of insurance and how it's always weighted towards white um, people getting more out of their um, fees than for blacks? But, but talk about the importance of data um, for policy change. Sure. So insurance, the, the basic concept is that, you know, you buy a, a huge thing like a house or a car you get an insurance policy. If something bad happens to that giant asset, the insurance company is supposed to make you whole. Um, so it's a way of preserving wealth. You have to pay for the policy repeatedly. Um, the uh, insurance company gets to decide how much your policy costs and how much the asset is worth. So right there, you have uneven treatment in um, different parts of the country in different neighborhoods. And as we were talking about before with uh, property appraisals, the owners being black are devalued. The, the property is devalued if the owners are black quite often. Um, this uh, seems to happen a lot in, in insurance. But what I also found was that on the other end, there's different treatment where when you are you are black and you're living in a black neighborhood and you have a an insurance policy and something goes wrong you file a claim an adjuster says are you committing fraud because there's a lot of fraud in your area and um insurers so like in, lawyers for um insurance customers see this happening but they can't really prove the big picture because insurers don't have to disclose any data about what they're charging people and what they're paying out in the end. We can't synthesize all of that. They say that the information on the payouts is a trade secret. Um, that Yet they really can use doesn't... that data to create products for themselves, but that's another... Yeah, I mean, not only not only does that make no sense because there's all kinds of data floating around in the financial industry that's similar to that that isn't a trade secret, but um, the Wall Street Journal actually found that the data is accessible to all insurers through a trade group. Um, so somehow, though, like federal and state officials have not managed to call them out on that. Part of the problem is that insurers aren't regulated at the federal level. They are regulated by states. And, you know, you've got 50 different states, 50 different people overseeing insurance. Nobody has the money. The organization isn't there. It's not like you have these, you know, we have really powerful banking regulators. But insurers just really get to do a lot more with so much less scrutiny. So about data, there's a great way that this could be fixed. We have a law called the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. It requires lenders to file all kinds of information. It requires banks to report uh, the terms of the, the home loans that they give to people, including who those people are, including their race. This was put in place to help stop redlining. It hasn't worked perfectly at all, but it's, a way, better, it's way better to have the data than not have it. You can compare what banks are doing in different neighborhoods and what banks are doing 
by the race of their customers. There is no such disclosure requirement for insurers, and there's a movement to um, to get insurers to make those disclosures. But so far, there's really not a lot of traction. Yeah, we got to free that data, and we, we call it Humda data, but um, we got to get um, a similar database for insurance. I I want to um, pivot a little bit to a a section of the book that was both amusing and depressing, and it was um, on the diversity circuit. Now, you got a chance to sit in on some DEI conferences and meetings. Um, In particular, you attended the Association of African American Financial Advisors, which goes by the nickname of Quad A. I want to lift up a a quote um, from the chapter on diversity circuit, The anodyne talk of diversity can be used as a shield against discussions of specific and unflattering problems. This also helps keep the topics of racism and representation in the margins of corporate life. Um, Tell us what you saw in these meetings. So the, the Quad A meeting was just outstanding. I mean, I think Quad A is a great and necessary uh, organization. It's a place for black financial advisors to come and meet each other and try to figure out how to get ahead. The The sad part, though, is nobody can, like, it's not a place for the anger uh, about how black financial advisors are being treated. Because what the conference is, is a place where, and you know, I'm Quad A does a lot, and I went to one conference, so I would also not like to be characterizing the entire organization. But the conference that I went to um, had visitors who were representatives of the banks, and they were speaking and talking about, you know, how to get ahead and how to get hired and everything. And some of these speakers from banks would talk about, you know, yes, our diversity numbers are terrible in, inside our institutions, and we're trying to recruit more from HBCUs. But no one talked about the fact that every bank represented there had been sued in a class action case for discriminating against black financial which, advisors. Which is, you know, which makes this quote from one of the participants even more alarming. Um, Jane Elliott um, in, in the book is quoted as, there is only one race on the face of the earth. Um, she shouted at the audience as we stood facing her after rising from our seats in groups according to our self-affirmed color. Um, you need, um, this is um, Jane Elliott again, you need to get into that, get that into your heads and get it now. She began referring to white people as colorless people and said that colorless people rearrange the environment to fit our needs. Later on, um, you quote her as shouting, give up the idea of whiteness. It isn't real. You know, from my perspective, you know, I go to lots of conferences and meetings that are designed in an industry for African-Americans or for people of color, BIPOC communities, and they're largely supportive. Yes, we've already bought into those industries, but there is what we call a safe space. You hear this all the time, a safe space for us to vent. Mm-hmm. I rarely hear something like that. I mean, I, you know, but you found people in there that really, as, as you state, drank the Kool-Aid, that, that, that they were in it. 
So, you know, for me, what did you take away? I mean, you already said you really found these these meetings um, to be um, productive and and add value. But when you hear something like that, and you did, you talked to somebody else um, after the, that person made that those quotes. Um, what did those other people um, think, and what did you think? Well, I think what you're getting at actually is, and and I should we should say that Jane Elliott is. She's she's like a sort of corporate motivational speaker Different. now. Yeah. Um, she's really old, and she became famous after she designed a um, an experiment for her elementary school kids. She was a school teacher. Right after uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated, she um, separated her kids yeah. and assigned them like different statuses according to their eye color, and then watched as they mistreated each other. You know and that the point of it was to show how arbitrary. Arbitrary, these, and I love right. Jane Elliott. By yeah, right. um, and so the like it actually the this is sort of the first time you, like your reaction is kind of giving me a new dimension We're of understanding because what she was saying was actually a little contradictory, um, and it, she was saying like you know, race is a construct, but she was saying it in a place where race is not just a construct. And, um, and so in a way, the, 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 like the force with which she was talking and, um, you know, it, it was like kind of, it was kind of like galvanizing people, like kind of trying to lift them up. But I still don't get the, um, you're in a, in a place where people are being sued every single day. Yeah. Um, while I appreciate her work on race, no question about it. She really, I, I you know, I read that and it didn't make sense to me. Um, but um, no, I think that you're you're making a really good point. Um, it like it was particularly weird, and it almost sort of helped the like. Actually, it was it was like sort of a channel for what could have been like it totally appropriate distress the by the members of quad a like directed toward the financial industry um in fact i i was just talking to somebody the other night about the big financial advisory firms like jp morgan and merrill lynch and wells fargo and and this person was a black wealth manager and she said i just want them to stop gaslighting us okay but nothing like that was really talked about publicly at Quad A. Like, there were these small references to, like, once you've had a bad experience at a big firm, yeah. then you want to go out on your own. And that's something that the conference was, like, very much about how do we break away from the, the industry and, and have success in spite of all of the barriers. I think that conference was helpful to the people who attended. The other conference that I write about in the book, though, was, like, the polar opposite. It was a an industry trade group for like the big financial institutions. Usually when this industry trade group meets, it's called SIFMA. The meetings are just like these enormous, very like like fancy gatherings with like 2,000 people. You know, it's right. mostly white men in suits. And their diversity conference was like 130 people in a room in New York. And no one who was there or very, very few people who attended that conference were white men. And so it was like all the people who need help in the financial industry 
because things are so uneven, and none of the people who are able to actually have the power to change the system. Well, I, you know, when I read that part, it was very, um, I think the conversation around race and, and, and banking, we need to be very clear about what's going on. Race is fundamentally built in the, the business model. And so that's what I thought you, your book made clear. And folks who work on race often somewhat discount how entrenched racism is in this um, enterprise. I mean, it, it, it's, it's fundamental from who you employ to the fees you charge, all of these things I thought you um, um, got in your, in, in your book. Now, I want to, um, we're, we're almost running out of time, but I really want to get on this chapter on reparations. Um, because um, you uplift two arguments somewhat. One is that banks should pay out reparations, and, um, and the other is banks shouldn't, but they should be involved in the reparations movement. Can you talk a, 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 a some about those two positions. And it seems like you fall, and in this case, uh, Sandy Darity is um, the person representing that they should not pay out. Um, It seemed like you leaned to that side. Can you talk about why you did? And and then I'll have some questions. Sure. So um, the reason I first thought that we should, that I, as you know, as a reporter doing this book, needed to figure out if banks should pay reparations is because I really think that we, I, I think about the Holocaust and I think about the restitutions that were made after the Holocaust, including by big companies. And I think about how German society is still held to certain standards because of the Holocaust mm. in laws. And it seems to me that the problem that we have in this country with racism is so huge that we need something like that. We need, like, we need truth and reconciliation. We need very, very clear statements about what happened, who did what, and what we're not going to do anymore, and how people were hurt. And there has to be a financial component. So I started, I started out sort of like just, I'm like a layperson, you know, I'm not an sure. economist and I'm... I'm not an historian, and so I, I was like, well, I'm just going to think about this in, my, in the context of like my own reality and what I know. And, and that's when I started to learn about Deidria, who kind of got, had gotten to this point um, that I was at, but like 20 years ago. And she, she decided to actually quit her job. She was working for the city, um, and she, she had this epiphany, which is a great story, and I'll leave it to readers of the book to read about what happened to her because it was amazing. But she was down on Wall Street, and she was like, I, I need to devote my life to going after the companies that are the, 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 the descendants of the, the companies that brought people captured in Africa over to this country and then earned so much money and you know generated the growth of this country. So she did that. She quit her job, went to law school, and sued um, big co- companies, including big banks, for reparations. And she mostly lost, mm-hmm. except for one count that she had um, framed in which the companies 
that she um, had found had direct links to slavery had not been forthcoming about it in the public eye and so that there could be financial damages because they were basically committing fraud on consumers by saying how great they were without acknowledging this horrible past. But she lost and there and I the more I learned about the history of the effort to get companies to pay reparations, the more I learned that it would be a really tough thing to revive as an effort because it's been tried. Um, what Sandy Darity says is, look, these companies have a ton of money, but they don't have the amount of money it's going to take to pay reparations. He says, he says though, that they have a, a distinct role that they ought to play, which is they should be supporting reparations and using their considerable power to lobby for reparations. But the, my argument um, against that, I think you laid out a, a pretty clear pattern of discrimination on the parts of banks. And so classes of people who've been discriminated against should lay claims to discrimination and reparations, regardless of how much in total. That's why I loved about your book. You really showed in real time, and it might be more in contemporary times, but people are owed um, for lost um, interest, lost um, opportunity. And so that's, that part is to sort of say that reparations are sort of, I mean, um, banks paying reparations is sort of a distraction from a congressional act. Didn't make sense to me. Well, I, I totally hear what you're saying. Um, I think that the, the, the way I, like, I guess there's the sort of the point that I've made absolutely about the just huge cost of being black in the 20th and 21st centuries, that it's not like slavery ended and then Jim Crow ended and then everything was fine. It's just constant sapping of wealth from the black community. I agree with that entirely. Um, the uh, Not just agree with it, I mean, I described it, but yeah, I agree with the, the fact that there needs to be restitution However, if you're looking at mechanisms, you're looking at a corporate America where you have like these legal recourses, you have lawsuits, you even have giant settlements like the National Mortgage Settlement, which the banks had to pay into to uh, supposedly fix what they had done to, in the lead up to the financial crisis and making all these bad mortgages. It's peanuts. And the, the way to even get to that was like a ton of legal action. And what I'm saying is we need to use, like, like deep understanding of the horror to bypass the legal system and get corporate America on board to change everything. Like, we can't just keep suing people. Right. Like, it's not enough. It's not powerful enough. But that's why everyone should go and get the white wall, because I really do believe that the people will continue to call you with their stories, and but I also think people will mobilize around the, the, these issues. So thank you very much for your contribution. Thank you so much for writing this book. Thanks for discussing it with me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. 
learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers' lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. <laughs>